as you guys know, we're going through the 10 Essential Doctrine series. And we've gone through Bibliology, Theology Proper, Christology, Pneumatology, and Angelology. Last week, or two weeks ago, we did Anthropology. Today is Harmartiology, which is the study of sin. We'll get to Soteriology, Ecclesiology, and Eschatology in the upcoming weeks. So, Harmartiology is basically the doctrine of sin. Doctrine is a, comes from a Greek word, didasko, just means teaching, the teaching of sin in the Bible. I'm going to lean heavy on John MacArthur for a couple of these things. These were not things that I put in my ordination paper, but I think things that need to be expressed and uh, conveyed to us so that we understand fully what, what the doctrine of sin is, and MacArthur does a great job in explaining it. So MacArthur says, the universal sinfulness of man is obvious and verifiable. Anybody relate? We can relate to that in our own lives. We can turn on the news, the internet, the newspaper. We see sin happening all over the place. Sin permeates every aspect of our existence. It impacts us individually and societally. It is deeply rooted within us and manifested continually. Throughout history, societies have consistently acknowledged man's natural sinfulness. Since the Enlightenment, however, Western civilization has become increasingly antagonistic to the reality of sin, especially as it is defined biblically. You need to be educated to know that sin doesn't exist. Okay? There are four main reasons for this change, and these are really good. First, modernity tends to view human beings as naturally good. Right? How many times have you been out on the street and witnessing to somebody, and you ask them why they're going to heaven, what's their answer? Because I'm a good person. Right? They don't have a, an, an, an acknowledgement or an awareness of their own sin, or maybe they do and they're just suppressing it. But the proverb says, give, an, give a man an opportunity and he'll proclaim his own righteousness. So societies are increasingly opposed to God's standards, even redefining basic aspects of human identity, such as gender and marriage. Now, he wrote that in 2017. Right? Think about what's going on now and how our society is devolving and these issues of gender, um, of, of life, the definition of life has changed when life starts. This is what happens when, when God judges a society and releases his restraint on the evil of their hearts. It will continually devolve to, to the point where I'm arguing with a guy on Facebook that abortion is sinful, it's murder, and he calls himself a Christian. He says, give me one verse that says abortion is murder. I said, thou shall not murder. What else do you need? So this is infiltrating the church. Now, I don't know his spiritual state. And I don't know if it's just a delusion um, or, or if he's not saved, but that's up to God, him and God. Second, deterministic views of humanity have challenged the biblical understanding of sin. People are viewed primarily as products of their environment, social upbringing, or psychological drives or deprivations. Right? I put Darwinism in there because obviously Darwinism is a, a theory of evolution. So we are the products of blind random chance over time. We evolved from animals. So when you teach kids that they evolved from animals and then they act like animals, why are you surprised? You told them that their great grandfather was a, an ape. So when he starts swinging around in the classroom and beating people up, why are you, under, why are you upset? This also gives rise to the, um, to the victimhood mentality. I'm a victim 
of my circumstance. I'm a victim of what other people are doing. Or I didn't grow up in a specific environment conducive to me to get a job. So it becomes this victim mentality that pervades the culture. We see that with the woke culture right now. Third, with the rise of postmodernism, our society has shifted towards moral relativism. Today, right and wrong, good and evil, are not defined in absolute terms, but are viewed subjectively. Okay, relativism, relativism is the hallmark of postmodernism, right? So you, you, you'll encounter people who say, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. Really? So now we have to define truth as what is really true, what is truly true, because then it becomes a matter of uh, insulin and ice cream. You might like butter pecan, you like Rocky Road. Which one is right? Doesn't matter, it's subjective. But if you have a headache and you take arsenic, it doesn't matter that you believe the arsenic is gonna cure the headache, it's gonna kill you, right? So we have to understand that there's objective truths outside of ourselves that govern over us. Just yesterday I saw a clip of a, of a, of, of a correspondent on MSNBC railing about the fact that they think, Christian nationalists, they think our rights come from God. That's what the Declaration of Independence said, actually. I just, I don't know. Um, and, and let me ask you something. If your rights don't come from God, who do they come from? Nazi Germany? That's what happened with the Jews. Their rights were given to them or taken away from them by someone else. So as soon as you take God out of the picture, you're talking about a, a very, very evil and corrupt society. Because someone's rights are going to tr trump yours. If they don't come from God, then we are not all created equal. Very, very important. Fourth, sin is an unpleasant subject. In our age of self-esteem and subjectivity, people do not like to think of themselves as evil. It's true. I mean, I didn't want to think of myself as evil prior to God opening my eyes to recognize I truly am evil at my core. And that needed to be changed by God himself. Okay, so what is sin? Of the Bible's 66 books and 1,189 chapters, only two books and four chapters do not mention sin or sinners. Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. Stand alone as unique chapters that rehearse the creation before sin and the new heaven and the new earth, which will never be infected by sin. The rest of the Bible from Genesis 3.1 to Revelation 20.15 abounds with the themes of human sin and the need for salvation. Sin is a major doctrine. Right, the problem of evil comes into play in this situation. And guess what? Our worldview is the only one who can explain the problem of evil and give the solution. Every other worldview cannot explain the problem of evil okay, and cannot give them the correct solution. Because if human beings are the ones who bring evil into the world, human beings can't solve the problem because we're evil. We need something outside of us. Again, objective. We have Jesus Christ, the Savior, who comes into the world to rescue us because we cannot save ourselves. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. It is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin is manifest in two ways, original sin and actual sin of word, thought, or deed, whether by commission or omission. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So let's go through the scriptures. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. That's where 
action comes in, in act, right? We commit sin. We practice sin. Anyone who's a Christian who practices sin needs to examine himself to see whether he's in the faith. You do not practice sin as a Christian. You slip into sin. 1 John 5, 17, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death, right? Anything that we do wrong, an act of the attitude is sin. Romans 7, 8, and 9, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetedness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandments came, sin came alive and I died. That's the nature, right? That, uh, um, <clears throat> that pertains to the nature of mankind. Covetedness, what's going on in our hearts? You got to just recognize that some sins are not crimes. We don't punish covetedness. Could you imagine there was a law on the books that punished covetedness? First of all, how would they know? And second of all, that would be a problem because we all covet things from time to time. James 4.17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Right. So this is a sin of omission. Seeing your brother you know, uh, on, the, on the side of the street needing help, and you walk by, right? This is James saying, oh, be well fed and move on. Show me your faith by your works, right? Our good works, we care for our brothers and sisters. We care for those people in the world who are not our Christian brothers and sisters. Whenever there's a disaster in the world, who are the first people in? The people of faith. Christians are usually running to the scene of the accident to try to help people, whether they're believers or not believers, Romans 14, 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Okay, so if, you're, if your conscience is bothering you about something and you err against your conscience, that's sin, right? So if you have doubts about something, okay, you want to go to the scriptures, see what it is you're having doubts about and find what the scripture says about that, okay, so that you don't act not in faith. Any questions so far? We're good? Okay. Moving right along. Sin is a result of the devil's activity. The devil was an instigator of the first sin, Genesis 3.1 and Revelation 12. He is the source or the originator of sinful behavior. Genesis 3.1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now that is a lie straight out of... Straight out of hell, right? You will not surely die. What did God say? In the day, day of you eat it, you will surely die. It's a complete contradiction of what God said. And then he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and then you will be like God. What did God tell Adam and Eve in the beginning? He's going to create them in his image, right? Well, he didn't tell them that, but they were created in God's image. They were like God already. So this is Satan deceiving Eve, telling her a complete contradiction of what God actually said, and then getting them to think that God was something 
that they that he was with there was something that God was withholding from them that they could have if they they didn't eat from the tree. Genesis 3:13 The Lord said to the woman, "What is this you have done?" The woman said, "The serpent deceived me and I ate." So it's the serpent's deception that brought sin into the world. Revelation 12:9 And the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, just to let you know, if Adam would have rebuked Satan and kicked him out of the garden, Adam and Eve would still have been pure. Sin comes through Adam because Adam fell. Sin was, Satan was sinning, but that would not have affected Adam had he rebuked the devil and said, we will die, and we're like God. Get out of here. God told Adam to guard the garden. He failed in his mission. Thankfully, God didn't give up on us. He sent his son, the last Adam, who's going to succeed everywhere that the first Adam failed. Okay, John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth with him, in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's the liar and the father of lies. This goes back to the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Now, this doesn't mean that Satan is actually procreating and making people, right? Father of lies is, is a, um, a, a kind of, a, I forget what, not, not an idiom, but a, a phrase that just represents him as the one who brought lies into the world. Now, here's something we like to talk about as Christians and apologists. How do we combat lies? Say again? With the truth. Right? It's as simple as that. When, when Jesus was tempted in, in, in the wilderness, he kept saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. Our job is to proclaim the truth to the people around us. So that when someone comes to us and says, well, I'm a boy, but I feel like a girl, you're a boy. That's the way God created you. Instead of changing the outside to match what you think is on the inside, how about we try to change the inside first, have it match the outside? Right? That's a easier solution. So we combat the lies that the world is telling us, like Pastor Chris tells us every week, the world is catechizing us. What do we have to do? Speak truth to the world. 1 John 3, 8 through 10, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Again, if you're born of God's Spirit, you don't practice sin, doesn't mean we don't sin, we slip into sin. We shouldn't be diving headfirst into it continually. If that's the case, you need to speak to one of your elders, you need, to, you need prayer, we need to work on this. We need to ask God, we have, you need to examine yourself again to see if you're truly in the faith. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is the evidence who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Right? The pastor has been going through the, the test in 1 John, the social test. Do you love your brother? Do you love your, your neighbor as yourself? Right? Are you seeking your other people's um, help and desire over your own? Seeking God's desires and his plan before your own? Okay, now we're, this is its origin still. 
Our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we are in them whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled, in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. And these are the scriptures that we'll use to go through it. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. These, these next five verses are verses you probably should try to memorize. Right? This is really important when you're talking to someone about the Lord. You want to not just present the good news without the bad news, because the good news isn't really good until you know the bad news is really bad. Right? That's when you're going to seek to cling to this and recognize, wait a second, in and of myself, I have no good standing before God. I am, I am worthy of every bit of wrath that he would pour out on me. I need a Savior. And through, through the knowledge of sin, all right, the law will lead you to Christ. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. A couple slides later, we're going to go through exactly what that means. Titus 1.15, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Anyone want to take a, a guess at what the word defiled means? Yes. Disordered, okay. Marred. Say again. Marred. Marred, yes, that's more along the lines. Contaminated, to cause to be morally filthy, right? It's tainted. That's what defiled means. It's a, it's a very important thing. We are tainted. We are contaminated. We are morally filthy in God's sight because of the inherited sin that we, we, we because of the sin that we inherited in Adam. Genesis 6, 5 through 6, we went over this one last week. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in all the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. <laughs> How long? Continually. <laughs> and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Ooh, that's a tough verse to try to, try to grapple with, right? Did God change his mind? We're not going to get into that today. That's a cliffhanger. We'll do that some other day. Jeremiah 17, 9, you probably all know this one. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Right? Proverbs, I think it's 27, says, Whoever trusts in his own heart is a fool. How many times have you heard people say, Oh, trust in your heart. You know, do, you know, do it, whatever it is you want to do. And you're like, my goodness, if we're to trust in our own hearts, that's what Hitler did. How's that working for you? It's not good. Right? We don't want people to trust in their own hearts. We need, again, outside help to get us to see and understand that our hearts are desperately deceitful and wicked. Okay, now you probably all know this verse by heart, right? This is Romans 3. This is another one. If somebody is um, objecting to your view on total depravity or the universal sinfulness of mankind, you want to take them right to Romans 3. And this is Paul writing this, and he's quoting all Old Testament verses. So this is not just once that this appears in Scripture. This is a combination of quotes that he took from the Old Testament. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, including Mary, just to let you know. Right? Everyone has sinned. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Only Jesus. No one understands. No one seeks for God. You know what that tells me? No one understands. Where does understanding take place? In your mind. Your mind is tainted. No one seeks for God. 
Seeking is a, is a function of desire, right? So our minds and our desires are affected by sin. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, right? The inclination of our heart has turned. We're going in a different direction. That's why we use the word repent. We need to go back into the right direction, right? And we, are more, we become worthless. That word worthless means morally bankrupt, right? We are in rebellion to God. Um, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. Mur hate and murder are in their hearts. Speech is affected. We bring forth lies. Like who? The, the father of lies. Right? When we speak lies, we're telling everyone that we are <clears throat> of the lineage of, of, of Satan. Not again, not that this is a physical lineage, you know what I'm saying. Okay? Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In, the past, in their past are ruin and misery. Their way of life is miserable. It's disordered. And instead of peace, it's enmity. Enmity, like I said, is hostility on steroids. We are, we are born into this word, world hostile to God. We don't want God. We want to be the center of the universe. We want to be autonomous and rule over ourselves. The human heart pushes away any rule over it. And it's only until God changes your heart and brings you under the lordship of Christ and gives you eyes to see and ears to hear that you actually do submit. He seizes and subdues your heart because of Jesus. There is no fear of God. Oh, I'm sorry. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God, right? Fear of God means reverence of God, taking him seriously, recognizing that there is a penalty for sin and not saying, oh, God will, God will, he knows me. You know, he knows my heart. He knows I really mean good. No, our sin is sinful before God's sight and worthy of condemnation. The total and total depravity refers to total distribution, not total saturation. That's Jim Oreck. He wrote a book, Mere Calvinism. I highly recommend that book. He has tremendous illustrations to bring forth the doctrines of grace. So it's called, called Mere Calvinism. I actually interviewed him on, on the channel if you wanted to watch that. So what he's saying here is the total and total depravity doesn't mean that our lives are completely saturated in sin and we, we're unable even to love our mothers or our children. What he's saying, it's touched every single aspect of our life, our mind, our understanding, our desires, everything about us has been tainted by sin. This quote will help a little bit better. Okay, this was uh, written by Eric Sigward. He was a pastor at Franklin Square OPC. And he says he was under, he was taking a class with Cornelius Van Til, who's kind of like the father of presuppositionalism. And this is what he said. This is what Van Til said to him. Total depravity. That means the whole glass is poisoned. It's not as poisoned as it could be, but it's all poisoned. The faculties of our soul are all turned against God by nature. We are poisoned by sin. Wherever there is evidence of God, which is everywhere, man will deny it, continually push against it. You see, God must, re God must reach down and save dead men in their trespasses and sins. 
You do not heal a dead man, you resurrect him. That's the difference between a Reformed understanding and an Arminian understanding. An Arminian would say, oh, you need help. <laughs> a Reformed guy would say, no, you're dead. You need resurrection. And that's what the Bible says. We've been resurrected, right? Man is not sick, not drowning, but dead. Dead is dead. Not mostly dead. It's dead. You can't throw him a rope. You throw a dead man a, ro a rope, what's going to happen? Nothing. Okay. A dead man can't grab anything. Your mother is dead without Christ. Your culture is dead without Christ. Water and sulfuric acid look the same, right? If you drink sulfuric acid, it will kill you. And he's referring to Carl Barth, who has a, a different theology. Barth has placed sulfuric acid in our water bottles and told us it's water. Barth has created the systematically most satanic philosophy ever devised by the mind of man. Salvation, however, is like cleaning a bad tooth. It's no good if your dentist tells you your tooth is okay when it's rotten. The dentist has to go down drill out the decay, and replace it with gold. That's what salvation is, right? So salvation is bringing a dead sinner to life, giving him a heart rather that has enmity towards God. He's going to give a heart that now has love and peace with God, okay? And like an old philosopher I know said, the T is true. Total depravity is true. Yes, Ted. Yeah, that, that we would call semi-Pelagianism. They believe that there's, there's a part of us that can do good and, and be pleasing to God, or else where would they get their, their doctrine about merit and us meriting things before God the Father? Now, they, they cloud it in all you know, uh, different um, words, condign merit, superfluous merit, all these different words. Basically, it's the merit of mankind that helps us get to heaven. This is why they have the doctrine of the treasury of merit. So that when someone, when a Roman Catholic dies, if he does not have enough good works to get to heaven, you pull from the bank, the treasury of merit. You apply that. Now, the, the treasury of merit is merit composed of Jesus, Mary, and the saints. You know what the treasury of merit is for us? Jesus. What merit do Mary and the saints have that's going to be applied to me? Their righteousness is going to be imputed to me? I don't want any human being's righteousness imputed to me. Good. Yeah, according to their doctrine, somebody who's a saint uh, has to go through the uh, beatification process, and they interview all the people that this, this, this person was in contact with, and if their good works outweigh their bad work, works, well, then they're going to get to heaven because they have excess merit. You also need, I think it's five or six miracles done in the name of that saint, it's all this stuff that is nowhere found in the Bible and, in fact, is like it's um, sulfuric acid in your, in your water bottle. You're going to drink that and you're going to die. Yes? It comes in. Well, that's a good question. So they're going to they're take the excess merit of marrying the saints, and that's going to get you the righteousness you need, but the temporal punishment for, for your sins still needs to be purged from you. Okay, so purgatory is a purgation, a purging of the remnants of sin in your life. They do. The people who do not, uh, are not part of the Roman Catholic Church, have not submitted to the Pope as pontiff, who do not believe in the bodily ascension of Mary into heaven. It goes on and on and on. The Roman Catholics have added to the gospel. The gospel is this, repent, change your mind, turn in a different direction, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 
Roman Catholic doctrine is, oh, yeah, yeah, you have to do that. But you also need to do good works. You also need to believe that Mary was bodily assumed into heaven. If you don't believe that, you're anathema as per the, the, the Council of Trent. That's when they came against the, uh, the Protestants. You need to submit to the Pope. If you don't believe that the Pope is the vicar of Christ on earth, you're uh, anathema. If you believe that you're justified, put in right standing with God by faith alone, you're anathema. So everything we hold as Protestants, they say is anathema. Now their, their understanding has changed because they see that the Protestant church, although fractured, we hold to the essentials together, they see that we're gaining ground. So now we're separated brethren. And I reject that. I am not their brothers and sisters. I am not their brethren. I am Catholic. I am not Roman Catholic. I love Roman Catholics. I want to see them know the Lord. I want to see them saved. I don't want to see them going through this cycle of works and this cycle of theology that ends in death. There is a way that seems right to a man. In the end, it leads to destruction. The only way is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, not anything that I bring. Okay? They would say that grace is necessary but not sufficient. We look at the grace of God and say, that is sufficient enough to save me. Look at the thief on the cross. He did nothing, could do nothing, except recognize that Jesus was Lord and confess him, who, who he was to the people around him. Good? little diversion. Okay, the, the effects of sin. The doctrine of sin directly defines mankind as fallen and affects everyone since sin defines life at birth, corrupts everyone's relationship with God, with other persons, and with creation, and brings all to death. Okay, again, I'm heavily re, um, relying on MacArthur here, but sin, we, we, we've heard sin scatters, right? What do Christians do, and what does Jesus do? We seek to reconcile. We seek to bring people who are at odds with one another together. We do not. Sin wins when people separate and stay separated. That's why it's so important, Matthew 18. If your brother has, if you have a sin or, some, or your brother sinned against you, you go to him. You don't run the other way and, and uh, uh, gossip about him behind his back. You go to him or her. You work it out. You reconcile. That's a win for the kingdom of God. Of course there's going to be sin in the church. Of course there's going to be disagreements and all kinds of things. But we are a people of God. Jesus came into the world, a world full of corruption and misery and sin. To do what? To bring us together, to reconcile. That's why it's so important that our church recognizes our mission is to become unity. We seek for the spirit of unity and the bond of peace so that sin doesn't win. Make sense? Okay, good. Well, I didn't read the second half of that. Sin impacts our entire human constitution and existence, right? Total distribution, not total saturation. Distorting every aspect of our being, body and soul. Sin also affects man's ability to fully rule and subdue the creation. Only a righteous man, Jesus, can succeed perfectly where Adam and mankind failed. Only the Son of Man can and will reverse the curse. Our faith is in Jesus Christ alone to reconcile this world and turn it back to what it was. MacArthur would say, sin always disappoints and never satisfies. Adam and Eve were instantly faced with this reality. The aftermath of their sinful act reveals sin's consequences. Embracing the serpent's lie, Adam and Eve expected to become like God, enlightened and fulfilled. Yet the exact opposite occurred. When Eve and then Adam ate the forbidden tree, 
the, the fruit of the forbidden tree, their eyes were opened, but not in the way they expected. They did not discover contentment and bliss. Instead, they experienced guilt and shame. They were immediately aware of their nakedness and sewed fig leaves together to cover their condition. The purity and innocence of their pre-false state ended. Everything suddenly changed. So isn't that the case even now? When someone sins, what do you do? You cover it up. <laughs> That's what Adam and Eve were doing. They were covering up. They didn't want to be seen in their sinful condition. Okay? That's what the, 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 the natural reaction of an unregenerate human being does. He wants to cover up his sin. I don't want people to know. They, know. they recognize and know that it's wrong. They just don't want other people to find out about it. Okay, here are the effects of man's sins. Man's relationship with God was severed. Man died spiritually, physically, and eternally. Okay, so there's an immaterial sense, there's a material sense, and then there's a time element sense, right? If we're separated from God, our sin separates us, that's going to be the everlasting condition of our existence unless we're reconciled by Jesus Christ through repentance and faith. Second, sin brings the wrath of God, which is God's righteous displeasure towards sin. Ephesians 5, 6, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Sin, third, sin invites God's punishment. God is holy and righteous. He must punish sin. Jesus says the wicked will go away into eternal punishment. It's the, it's the justice of God applied to that person's life. Fourth, sin creates enmity. Okay? Again, hostility between two parties. Romans 5.10 says that people are enemies of God and alienated from the life of God in Ephesians. Fifth, strife between all persons is promised and realized. I mean, right out of the gate, Cain slew his brother Abel. I mean, there's four people on the planet, and he kills one. Lamech killed a young man who struck him. So, I mean, this is murder that, that starts in, in, in the very beginning of mankind. Sixth, sin affects creation. Creation now works against man and frustrates his efforts. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. In sum, not only will Adam and his descendants suffer and die as individuals, but also all of his relationships will suffer. That's why, again, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to recognize sin for what it is and work to reconcile with one another. It's not easy, but it's mandatory. God reconciled you to Christ by his death on the cross. Right? We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We, too, have to reflect that to the people around us. Only the Lord Jesus will be able to restore mankind's relationship to God, to one another, and to the creation. As the last Adam, Jesus, he will love God and his people perfectly and will manifest absolute control over the creation. Okay. Two components, two categories, I should say. There's original sin and actual sin. How does the first man's sin affect all born after him? Theologians often refer to this reality as original sin, from the Latin peccatum original. In one sense, original sin refers to the first sin committed by Adam, but original sin also encompasses the sinful state and condition of all people because of their relationship to Adam, which is the reason people are depraved and tainted with sin from conception. The Bible says that creatures reproduce after their own kind. After Adam fell in sin, he reproduced after his own kind. He was a sinner, and that was reproduced in him. 
original sin, all mankind fell in Adam's transgression. The covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but also for his posterity and all mankind, descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. This comes right out of Keech's Catechism. 1 Corinthians 15, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. One act of righteousness. If you're a Roman Catholic, read that. One act of righteousness. Not all your acts and all Mary's acts and all St. Joseph and St. whoever's acts. One act of righteousness. That's so important leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Okay, Now, that's, that's a mouthful. This has like a lot of theological implications. So I'm going to rely on a scholar, Wayne Grudem, who we talked about in the cessationist movie. We don't like him, right? No, only we, we like him. We just disagree with that position. He's, he's a brilliant man. This is what he says to explain that verse, because it needs to be explained. Paul explains the effects of Adam's sin in the following way. Therefore, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. The context shows that Paul is not talking about actual sins that the people commit every day of their lives. For the entire paragraph, Romans 5, 12 to 21, is taken up with the comparison between Adam and Christ. When Paul says, thus in this way, that is through Adam's sin, death spread to all men because all sin, he's saying that through the sin of Adam, all sinned. We need to clarify. And he goes into the aorist tense, right? The aorist indicative uh, in the historical narrative indicates a completed past action. Right? Adam's sin is completed past action. Here, Paul is saying that something happened and was completed in the past, namely that all sinned, but it was not true that all people had actually committed sinful actions at the time Paul was writing. Right? When Paul was writing, I wasn't alive, neither were any of you. Yet, the Bible says we sinned. It's a completed action in the past. Um, because some had not even been born, yet many others had died in infancy before committing any sins. So Paul means that when Adam sinned, God considered it true, that all people sinned in Adam. Considered it true. Okay, we're going to have to go what that means. This idea that all sinned means that God considered all of us as having sinned when Adam disobeyed is further indicated by the next two verses. Paul said, Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is the type of one who was to come. We're going to clarify what that means now. <laughs> Paul points out that from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, people did not have God's written laws. Right? We had God's laws on our heart, but we didn't have the Mosaic laws. We didn't have the commandments. Those came 430 years after Abraham. Though their sins were not counted as infractions because there was no written law, they still died. The wages of sin is death. The fact that they died is good proof that God counted people guilty on the basis of Adam's sin, okay, where there is no law. In other words, the law was, was after uh, Abraham. 
The idea that God counted us guilty because of Adam's sin is further affirmed in Romans 5, 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, Adam's trespass led to our condemnation, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Paul says explicitly that through the trespass of, of one man many were made, uh, I don't even want to pronounce that, also an Arist indicative, here indicating completed past action. When Adam sinned, God considered all of whom would descend from Adam as sinners. That getting clearer or muddier? <laughs> I hope it's clearer. The conclusion to be drawn from these verses is that all members of the human race were represented by Adam in the time of testing in the Garden of Eden. As our representative Adam sinned and God counted us guilty as well as Adam, God counted Adam's count, God, I'm sorry, God counted Adam's guilt as belonging to us, and since God is the ultimate judge of all things in the universe, and since his thoughts are always true, Adam's guilt does in fact belong to us. The technical term that is sometimes used in this connection is to impute, meaning to think of as belonging to someone and therefore caused to belong to that person. God rightly imputed Adam's guilt to us. Right? So because Adam sinned, okay, that his guilt is imputed to us. Now, what do you think the natural reaction of mankind is when they hear that we're being, uh, we're condemned because of Adam? What do you think they're going to say? Wow, that's not fair. It's not fair that I'm getting condemned from Adam's sin. Now, mind you, when they're saying this, they've sinned. <laughs> it's, they've, they have actual sins that they've committed when they say it's not fair. Yes. Of course, yeah. That's that's one of the that's one of the explanations somewhere along the line. We 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 are um, we're mutable, right? God is immutable. He doesn't change. We are subject to change, right? So, given enough tests, we will fail. But given the test in the garden that Adam and Eve had, it proved two things. First, of the, they could eat of any tree they wanted. They had everything, right? They failed. They couldn't even do that. But what else does, that, does the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil prove? It proves how much God loves sinners and what he's willing to do to go after them. That tree of the knowledge of good and evil gave us the knowledge of evil of ourselves and the knowledge of good. God is good. He clothed Adam and Eve in the garden with a, with a dead animal, skins. This is what God would eventually do with his son Jesus. So it proved God's love for humanity and what he would be willing to do to go after them. Okay, let's get back to that's not fair. The most persuasive answer to the objection is to point out that if we think it's unfair for us to be represented by Adam, then we should also think it's unfair for us to be represented by Christ and to have his righteousness imputed to us by God. Oh, it's not fair that we're counted guilty, but it's perfectly fair that we're counted innocent because of Jesus. When you reject federal headship with Adam, you lose federal headship with Jesus. You want fair? What are you asking for if you want fair? You want justice. Can I tell you something? You don't want justice? If you're given justice, you're going to be guilty on every account. You've broken every commandment numerous times over. You will not be found innocent in God's sight. For the procedure that God used was the same, and that is exactly Paul's point in Romans 5, as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. 
Adam, our first representative, sinned, and God counted us guilty. But Christ, the representative of all who believe in him, obeyed God perfectly. And God counted us righteousness by one act of obedience. That is simply to say, that is simply the way in which God set up the human race to work. He set it up to work covenantally. Adam is our federal head when it comes to sin. Jesus is our federal head when it comes to righteousness. Thank God he's not fair. That's mercy. Okay, we got to move a little bit. We got two categories, original sin and actual sin. Actual sin can be described in three ways. I'm going to read this a little quick. I acknowledge my sin, did not cover my iniquity, and I will confess my transgressions. Now, all three of those are sin, but they, they are a little bit different. Sin means to miss the mark. It's actually used of somebody who's shooting an arrow at a target and they miss, right? It can refer to something against God or against the person, doing op the opposite of what is right, doing something that will have negative effects, and failing to do something you know is right to do and not doing it. A transgression is when someone crosses a line or climbs a fence that he should not cross or climb. Transgression may be intentional or unintentional, Trespass can also mean to fall away after being close beside, basically like Peter did when he denied Jesus. He fell away. Right? To, to transgress means to cross the line, intentionally or unintentionally. And last is iniquity, and that's more deeply rooted. Iniquity means premeditated choice, continuing without repentance. David's sin with Bathsheba that led to the killing of her husband Uriah was iniquity. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their on their beds. So iniquity is a more serious sin. You're actually planning to sin. You know what you're doing is wrong and you're intentionally planning to do it anyway. Actual sin. Sin is the free, natural, and evil choice of man who is enslaved to sin and produces lawlessness. Sin is made evident through the unregenerate man's heart and is not the fault of God. Right? Genesis 6-5, we saw that his, the intention of his heart was only evil continually. Deuteronomy 9, 6 through 8, you have been rebellious against the Lord, even at Horeb. Ephesians 2, 3, among whom we also lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, wrath like the rest of mankind. No one is born into the world physically as a child of God. We are born with a depraved nature. That's why we need to be born again, right? We've been, all been born from below. We need to be born from above. Jesus, uh, John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Okay, moving right along. Okay, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You know this verse. Galatians. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rages, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I didn't know what to highlight on that, so I just, everything. Like, you're, you're depraved. Look, somewhere in there, I can see my story. Can you? Yes, we all can, right? It, let me ask you something, because somebody had said that the red was causing a problem. Is it easy to see the yellow rather than the red? 
No, great. Okay, good. <laughs> Another sin. I missed the mark. No, all right. I got to come up with a different color. All right, here we go. Psalm 5. Sin is not caused by God. God is the prime cause of the universe and human beings in it. Humanity as the secondary cause brings sin into the world. God is not responsible for sin. And as Calvinists, we get accused of that all the time. You mean God decreed the fall? Then God's responsible for evil. No. God decreed that Adam would freely choose to, to eat the fruit. He freely chose that as per God's decree. Well, he couldn't do differently. Well, no. So he made Adam do it? No. He decreed that Adam would freely choose the fruit. Okay, Psalm 5. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. So when God says, God, when somebody comes to you and says, oh, God loves the world, loves everyone the same. Say, what about this? Psalm 5, Psalm 7, Psalm 11, Proverbs 6. There are six things the Lord hates. On and on. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. No. You need to be born of God and have that covenantal love that's going to redeem you for all, for all time, I should say. God has a general love for humanity and a love for the cosmos. But there's a special salvific marital love that he has for his bride that he doesn't have for the rest of the world. Christ, Paul cites this easy enough. Love your wife like Christ loved the church. Now, if you're married, you have a special love for your wife that you are not to give to other women. We agree? Yeah, everybody should be a yes. We agree. <laughs> okay? You do not want to love another woman like you love your wife. She's going to be mad, and God's going to be mad. All right? So there's a special covenantal marital love that God has for his bride. We are the bride of Christ that he does not have for the rest of the world. Deuteronomy 7, I set my love on Israel. But if God loves everybody, why does he have to set his love on Israel? Ask him that. <laughs> when they say God loves everybody, really, why do you have to set his love on Israel? Is that a different kind of love than the love you're talking about? James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Temptation is from the enemy. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Why is it good that God doesn't change his mind? Micah 4, so that you're not consumed. That's why it's good that he doesn't change his mind. If he sets his love on you, it's permanent. Thank God. John 1, 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him who proclaims to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He's pure light. He's pure love. There is no evil. There is no misjustice. There's nothing wrong in God. Questions? Yes, Ted. Sure, try using that in front of a judge after you rob the bank. But judge, I know I robbed this bank, but you know how many good things I've done? Really, I take good care of my kids. I get good grades when I went to college. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a really good worker at my job. So I robbed one bank. But I've done so many more good things. That doesn't work in a court of law. And it's not certainly not going to work in God's court. Because guess what? You've sinned much, 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 much more than you actually realize. All right, with that, we're going to close. <laughs>